0: welcome to the latest usga green section podcast episode i'm john petrovsky host and education manager in the green section we have a great conversation on tap today with dr rock disoit at the university of nebraska he brought us up to speed on a collaborative effort with usga agronomists university scientists and others to standardize organic matter testing on golf course putting greens Dr. Gaswa, thanks for joining us. Before we dive in today's, into today's topic of organic matter testing, most of our listeners know about your great research and academic work. But can you give us a brief background on where you're from, how you got into turf research, and kind of your current role at the University of Nebraska?
1: Be happy to, John. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this great collaborative effort among a number of turfgrass scientists. But, you know, I was born in New Mexico in a small town that didn't have a hospital. So I was born in Albuquerque, you know, moved there to California because my dad took a position. Um, From there, we, you know, went the academic route. My dad was really academically oriented, had his master's in physics and whatever. So he was really, and he was a teacher, as was my mom. So, you know, she's like, he's like, well, you got to go to college. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And Started out in wildlife science and found out I didn't want to be a game warden and uh, ended up in, in in essentially in agronomy. Then I got a master's in turfgrass breeding from New Mexico State University and then I got a great opportunity to work with Bruce Branham on a annual bluegrass, uh, you know, obviously a golf course specific problem, uh, mostly. Um, and at Michigan State University, my PhD alma mater, and um, from there I went to uh, Kansas State for three years. Um, I jokingly say got time off for good behavior and uh, ended up at Nebraska right at the time of year when they were winning national championships. That's been a long time ago. So it just kind of shows you how long I've been at, at Nebraska, 30, 32 years in June. The USGA and the USGA uh, Mike Davis program have been very good to me. I don't think a year has gone by that I didn't receive some funding. Um, and that's what got me down on, on the road of the end of the organic matter um, issues and you know, I've spent the better part of 15 years working on organic matter and some of the nuances and some of the pitfalls and some of the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. So it's been an amazing experience, and it wouldn't have happened without the support of the um, USGA uh, Mike Davis program.
0: Absolutely, and it's been a long and uh, productive career, and we, you were recently recognized as the Green Section Award recipient for 2023, so congrats on that, and uh, we will look forward to continuing our collaborative efforts going forward.
1: It's a great opportunity, to, and I really appreciate the the, uh, the uh, opportunity. Yep.
0: You mentioned the Cornhuskers. I'm not sure how into the football season you are, but that was a it was a rough weekend. Michigan came to town. I don't want to recount the gory details, but my wife's a Michigan alum, so I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't exactly pulling for you guys, but
1: well, and that's fine because I think if it, if we'd done, we were happy to score. I mean, we're just, we were boys among men, unfortunately. Michigan is just so good. I mean, we're trying and we're working, and Matt Rule's got them playing better and playing with more passion. But at the same time, it's its definitely, we've been in a rebuild for a long time, but I'm hopeful that we um, end up with something. You know, we still have our eyes on possibly a bowl. You know, we've got to win four, and we think there's two in there at least. And maybe we'll pick up two more. But if we don't make a bowl, I mean, our, our glory days of the 90s, um, are are, gonna, are a, long, a long way backwards, you know, in time and certainly forward in time. We just got to be patient.
0: All right. Well, we'll move on from our trip down memory lane with the glory days of football, Cornhusker football to today's topic of the great project you mentioned earlier of you are working on with uh, several other university scientists and some of our agronomists to standardize organic matter testing so rock superintendents know all too well the importance of organic matter as far as it affects turf health and playability we're seeing sort of a shift in how folks think about it and manage it uh, and particularly how we test for it and that's where i wanted to focus our conversation today on organic matter testing and sampling for specifically for golf course putting greens can you summarize sort of the key issues and inconsistencies with how we have traditionally tested for organic matter on putting greens.
1: When we look at the standardized method that is used in agronomic crops and for that matter horticultural crops for measuring organic matter, it's a very specific it's 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 approved by the Soil Science Society of America and most of the labs are doing it this way and and that methodology was moderately effective in identifying a lot of the work that we've done and Dr. Murphy have done and Doug Lindy's done and, you know, Doug Soldat done. You know, a lot of scientists have been working on organic matter. But, but unfortunately, the inconsistencies in how we sample and then what we do once we get it to the lab, we're creating, you know, we don't want to be comparing apples to oranges. So if there's a piece of, it would be like a golf course up the road does organic matter with lab A, this methodology, and golf course down the road Uses lab B and this methodology for sampling, and so there's no consistency. And we know how superintendents are big on comparing, you know, comparative analysis. Well, what kind of stems are you getting? What kind of well, with, you know, the the organic matter to me is kind of the the stem meter of the new millennial or green speed of the new millennial because they, you know, they want to know, well, hey, what are where are you at, and 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 we're so much more data driven. But we didn't really have a a, a specific method for the uniqueness and what we're trying to figure out when it comes to a golf green. And this is true from the academic standpoint as well. I'll pick up an article that one of my colleagues or good friends has written, and I'm going, why are those numbers so different than what we got when we did exactly the same thing? Well, you didn't do exactly the same thing. We may have had the same treatment. We have you know different environments, obviously. But at the end of the day, they were using a different method in the lab or a different temperature when they ashed the sample. And there's a lot of complexities in this. So what the goal was... um, once again, thanks to the USGA, is they got a group of us together to look at, you know, standardization. And that's, that's where we are now. We want to have a standardized method. The ASTM is, you know, the, they do all the testing for everything from engineering to agronomy, etc., at the end of the day, we want to get an ASTM standard, and we are getting close to being able to put put a standard together, submit it to them for approval. It gets you know, it gets reviewed very extensively and very rigidly, and they say, yeah, this can be a standardized method specific for golf course putting greens, um, you know, and then people can start using it. And then we don't have the inconsistencies, and we're not comparing apples to oranges. So we're really excited about uh, about this, but we. You know we did find some things out that we were surprised about and found some things out that we weren't surprised about as we've worked on this for over a year and a half now
0: very good rock i should provide some background for our listeners so a few years ago our west region agronomist and now chief organic matter officer brian whitlark started a collaborative collaborative effort with you and you mentioned dr doug soldat at wisconsin dr jim murphy at rutgers and dr doug lindy at delaware are kind of your other university-based collaborators. And the, the whole idea was to address some of these major inconsistencies in how we test for organic matter and kind of get a consistent and standardized method. Was there a specific incident or person or thing that kind of got this the, the whole project started? Or has this kind of been in the works for a little bit?
1: I'm going to say that, you know, we all universally agreed, but didn't really have the opportunity or the funding or the initiative to to put together something of the, of this level and i'm not saying it's that complex it's you know we're not talking nuclear fission here but we but we are talking about having to get a group together of like mind and you know like you said brian whitlark um was instrumental in moving forward because you know the agronomists in the field not just the USJ agronomists but you know the pga um tour agronomists as well just consultants as well as superintendents that like to be data driven we're like wait a minute this number isn't even remotely close to the number I got that I did last year with a different lab. And then you find out that, you know, the labs are using different techniques in the lab and then how you sample. And like I said, it's it's it seems really complex, but it's not as complex as it seems once you break it down into sort of these fundamental parts, you know, how you take the sample and what you do with the sample before you submit it to the lab and how the lab then handles it once they get it. If we can get those consistent, then certainly... Everyone, then we can compare, you know, especially during the tournaments for both the USGA and the PGA, they can compare organic matters and performance data because we are in a data-rich society now. We have capacity to do a lot of data. Yet one of our most fundamental measurements has all these inconsistencies in it. So that's that's where we're that's where we're at in terms of justification and background, Um, and we've we've really felt like we've made some gains in the in the last couple of years.
0: Rock, you mentioned. Some of the ways we've traditionally tested for organic matter, a lot of people, when they do their soil nutrient analysis, they'll get back a percent organic matter number on that test result from whatever lab they're using. Is there any value to that?
1: There's certainly value value in that number. Because, you know, if you're always going to the same lab, then you have a consistent record of organic matter, regardless of how they measured it. But is is that number then going to reflect in firmness and the, some of the other qualities that we want for a you know for a putting service you know it's a it's a it's a decent number for but for the most part most of many of the labs and, and there's been some adjustments made you know the lab that we currently use has made the adjustment we can submit a sample the way we want it analyzed and you know certainly there um, but we would like that to be standardized anyway not to belabor that um, but at the end of the day, that number has value in terms of trend analysis and what you're trying to figure, you know, hey, am I, if I'm doing X, Y, and Z with the airifier and my top dressing sand, am I going up or am I going down? Um, if I'm going down, is it going down at a rate I would like to see, especially if I, if the superintendent, if he or she started with really high organic matter and they're trying to reduce it and how effective is their technique? So it gives a number for that, but it, but to us, it lacks the precision and I think for the most part, you know, most of the academics and consultants and, you know, agronomists would agree, it lacks the precision to really identify where we see the most problematic issues in a sample. Because it's a standardized depth. It's either zero to three or zero to six um, and inches. And so and I'm using English units. I apologize for our European listeners. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's so that when you look at a sample that's th- three inches or six inches, then the conflicting thing is that if that green is really young, you're going to have an un, a calculatable lower organic matter in a zero to three than you would, let's say, if, if the green is tw- 15 to 20 years old, where you've got a three-inch deposition of organic over time, right? So so we have this age effect, maybe making it much more difficult to interpret or use to make an adjustments in your in your management style. And we saw this in some work we did, you know, some of our early organic matter work where we worked with coring tines and solid tines, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we were like, yeah, this is confounding, what we call confounding. So it's confusing the issue. So there there needs to be a standardized depth or depths. And since we're most interested, you know, I'm going to say top inch or top two to two and a half centimeters, then maybe we should concentrate on that as our goal, because that's where we're going to see the highest organic matter and that's also the surface which is causing problems or positive or negative with the, with the putting surface in in play. So, you know, one of the very first things was to say we quit need we need to quit using a standardized depth that is recommended for agronomic crops of of 0 to 6 inches because we unnecessarily complicate the matter with numbers all over the charts depending upon the age of that green, because we know that organic deposition or layer increases as a green ages. And if, if we look at some of the samples we've taken of greens that were, you know, 40 years old, you know, you take a three inch sample and it's all organic. I mean, it's not, it's higher at the top, but, it, you know, but if you take a sample that from a green that's a year old, it's all in the top half to inch because that deposition. So that was a really confusing and confounding issue when we started looking at the data. And a lot of the academics as well as superintendents were sampling in that sort of zero to three range without cutting it into segment again, I guess is what we would say, um, into depth so that we got a better representation of that surface.
0: Exactly. So you guys identified the problem. And now, Rock, let's kind of fast forward to 2023. After those first few years of testing and refining the process, can you talk a little bit about the Final recommendations you're sort of settling on for sample depths. Are you going to incorporate sort of the testing at different depths of the of the sample, uh, the number of samples per greens, and kind of how you settled on these final recommendations for taking the sample?
1: Right. Let, let's start with the with the you know taking the sample and the depth. We certainly don't want an arbitrary you know zero to three because so we we, we are going to suggest partitioning. Um, probably, you know, in inch increments or in centimeter increments. You know, there's uh, Micah Woods, and he, I believe he indicates that this came from Chris Tritterball in, in Minnesota. But um, basically, they, you know, they call it OM246. It's a hashtag out there that's really prevalent. And a lot of people have done that. And certainly, you sample from roughly the top inch or the two centimeters, you know, then four centimeters, then six. And you partition that out into three samples, um, and, and we've done a fair amount of that work as have others that, you know, especially the members of the group that are doing this work. Uh, you know, we certainly see higher at the top and, you know, as it goes down, but it gives you information on incrementally rather than an arbitrary six inch sample or three inch sample. So, so there, there's some increase in accumulated data and knowledge that you can use for that. But if a green has only got a you know, you can see that organic layer kind of as an oxidized, darker color. If it's more than three inches, maybe you want to go deeper just to see how effective your treatments are going. So maybe you want to go, you know, two, four, six, eight, ten. Certainly, that adds cost because nobody's doing this analysis in their you know, in their shop. Um, I mean, some of the academics are. We have, you know, we have the capacity to do that, et cetera. But um, at the end of the day, that that incremental sampling, at the very least, sample that top inch or two or into the organic layer. But we like that partitioning idea and and kudos for Chris and then and then uh Micah Woods, Dr. Woods for promoting it because people are starting to think more data is better. And, you know, then there are some, you know, pace consulting and other of which Mike is a chief science officer for now, certainly have recommendations based on partition samples and stuff. And, you know, we haven't vetted those or whatever, but that certainly gives more information to the superintendent to make better informed um, decisions. The other issues we ran into, so that so that's kind of sampling. You know, we're gonna not make it an arbitrary zero to three, and we're gonna make adjustments accordingly. And that'll be superintendent dependent and and budget dependent because every sample is another is another cost. But also about you know so for years or at least for the triple you know the Soil Science Society of America they say take. Um, and you know and turf adapted this they say take the organic matter the live organic matter off the surface so we call that sampling to the verdure right you you clip the sample after you bring it in and and a lot of the data out there that's in the academic community did that the interesting thing is is that more recently people have started to say wait a minute that probably is going to make the sample more variability in your sample because how can anyone in a shop or even in a lab with a you know a razor blade accurately take off the verdure and only leave the organic matter at the surface? So you know the work that the that the organic matter group has been doing, um, and primarily the lab work is being done at Wisconsin with Dr. Soldat's group and one of his students, Travis Miller, um, is we're leaving. We've tested extensively verdure on or verdure off and verdure is defined as that living tissue left after mowing so it would be green tissue left after mowing and we're finding that we increase the variability and the inconsistency in sampling when we take the verdure off so our suggestions are and we're pretty pretty confident this is going to happen is that when you submit a sample mow sample submit the sample with the organic mayor layer on it you know green tissue as well as brown and you will have more consistent data than you would if you sat there and, you know, just meticulously took the green tissue off. So certainly that is a, is a step in the right direction, and others have been doing this and suggesting it, but, you know, I think would, that'll be a part of the ASTM, ultimately the ASTM method as well. The other thing is, is after you send it in, what the lab does with it is important, because once again, the Soil Science Society of America says that organic matter should be ground and, and sieved, So think about it. You grind it up and then you sieve it. When you do that with the kind of organic duff we have on the surface of golf greens, it leaves a lot of organic matter above the screen. It's a, it's a 10 mesh screen. And so it lowers the estimate and also excludes some of the organic matter that we're most interested in. If you want to look at it from a, from a physical standpoint. So, um, Our data is showing that don't grind and don't sieve. If your lab is doing that, certainly they wouldn't, superintendent wouldn't sit there and buy a grinder and do it. But if the lab is doing that, you need to request that they don't do that. And some labs have already adjusted to um, not grinding and sieving. So all you want them to do is take that sample, and maybe it's an inch increments at the very least, and you want them just to take that sample, put it in the furnace. We call it a muffle furnace, ash the uh, organic matter off at, at a set temperature and then by subtraction and math we can figure out you know the percent organic matter in that sample so those are two critical issues is one leaving the verdure on and two not grinding and sieving because that was introducing variability that you wouldn't see in a sample say from an agronomic soil because they tend to be lower in organic matter unless they're organic soils to begin with and so we don't get that buffering effect because our numbers are higher and we're looking at a precision a more a need for a more precise measurement so those are two big deals and i think our final method is clearly going to show verdure on and uh, no grinding and sieving
0: very good rock you blew through my next two questions there but you were on a roll so i didn't want to interrupt and i think i think that's well said How many samples per green do you think you'll be recommending for superintendents to send in to get an accurate representation of their green?
1: Oh, I love that question because, you know, I, prior to the data we now have, and I'm going to describe to you a little bit how we got the data, but, you know, I was telling the superintendent, take your, take your three quarter inch standard soil sampler, go across the green, take 20 samples, put them in a bucket, bulk them together and send them off to the lab for analysis. Um, And 20 was somewhat arbitrary. That's the number I was suggesting. I've heard people suggesting, you know, use a grid pattern and get his, you know, go every, you know, every six to eight feet or two meters. And, you know, it turns out, and I was shocked by this, but Doug and his student, Travis, Doug Soldat, um, have did some really nice spatial analysis. And basically they found between five and 10 represents the average green. So that's good news because the sample itself you know, it's less laborious or onerous or whatever word you want to use to take the samples. And it looks like five to 10 is sort of the magic, the magic number. Now, certainly there are other things you do. You know, you don't sample in entry and exit points unless you're interested in the organic matter there. But because of traffic, they tend to be lower because traffic kind of reduces organic matter in, in general. And you don't want to sample along the ridges, along the edges. You don't want to sample in the cleanup. Those are all things that superintendents are already doing. But so you need to take 5 to 10 in the in the green, and then if you have a, a bad spot or a hot spot or something, then sample that separate and label it accordingly before you send it to left. So that was good news. You know, 5 to 10 samples seems to be the magic number for the average green. And the way we did it is we went to golf courses in Scott Wilkie at Firethorne was gracious enough to allow us to pretty much tear up a green because we took a lot of samples off one green, as did, off, excuse me, off five greens. And they did similar in, in Delaware with Doug Lindy, Dr. Lindy, and then uh, Doug Soldat did it at, at, at a golf course in Wisconsin. So we have a widespread, you know, and interestingly enough, the data clearly shows that five to 10 is the magic number, which is good news. Um, and then you brought up the other thing is that how, how big a sample do you need? And, you know, we developed an inch and a half diameter sample sampler, and we thought that was going to be the magic number because certainly you, you can't take you know five to ten cup cutter samples. But um, but we found out that really that the, the three-quarter inch, the standard soil sample, which is either a three-quarters of an inch or an inch, um, is more than adequate to represent along with the number we just described. Um, and the inch and a half sampler we developed wasn't any more precise in estimating organic matter. So that's good news because you can sample and you know, within a day or two, you don't even know you've been in there and taken, you know, five to 10 samples. So sample diameter, number of samples, um, we're pretty comfortable with the numbers we're coming up. And once again, I want to preface that we we haven't released it yet. We still have some data to analyze, but I think early, you know, late, early winter, late spring, we should be close enough to be able to put forward some recommendations. It's
0: great to hear you incorporated some of that feedback from Firethorn and other golf courses. We'll hear that often from superintendents. Some things developed in research settings may not be applicable all the time on a golf course. So making it a useful and practical method for superintendents is important to get them to kind of buy in. The tool you mentioned that that you developed, um, how did that come about and will that be available to superintendents going forward?
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't, you don't, the, the tool is just basically instead of a, a three quarter inch sampler, it's an, it's an inch and a half in diameter, um, but you don't really need that big a sample, right? So at the end of the day, um, we don't really suggest that you buy, you know, we we had one and it's got, you know, we've got a really good retired certified golf course superintendent worked for us in his retirement, moved to Lincoln from central Nebraska to be closer to his, his, his daughter And anyway, long story short, Craig Ferguson basically is a really good mechanic because he was in a smaller golf course that didn't have a mechanic. And so he welded us up, these really samplers, and he made one for everyone involved in the study. And I really like the sample it takes and everything, but you don't need it. So just a standard soil sampler is more than adequate. So certainly, you know, and you can get inch-and-a-half samplers from any of the soil um, apparatus companies, but we just don't think you need it, John. It's fine with a three-quarter
0: Rock, you mentioned earlier leaving the verduron and how that'll sort of change the baseline percent organic matter, um, which superintendents will be able to adjust to. From the playability perspective, the reason we do all these tests to provide a good putting surface for golfers, how important is leaving the verduron to capturing and understanding how the golf ball interacts with the putting green surface?
1: See, it's really not going to have any effect on that. I mean, you know, we have new tools. You know, the GS3 is a great new tool to to measure, you know, various attributes of the surface in addition to green speed, you know, and, and you know, those people that have picked up that device are, you know, getting more data rich and, and understanding that, you know, immediately after verification, this is what happens to the greens and how long does it recover from this particular thing. And, and you know, we have one in our possession and we've been playing around with it. And, you know, that's going to be a tool that talks about, it relates to surface performance and and ball roll characteristics you know be you know side to side motion and up and down motion um and and firmness those are all done better with another device the amount of verdure you know leaving the verdure on or taking it off really doesn't affect our interpretation of those sort of attributes playability i mean certainly organic matter affects that i think we meant you started the conversation with we know what it does you know higher rates stay wet longer etc cetera, etc cetera, whatever but um I really don't think we see any, you know, leaving the verdure on is not going to affect our interpretation of the organic matter data.
0: Rock, staying on the sampling, as far as superintendents taking the sample, is there any kind of advice you have for them as far as where they test on the green, the time of year, or anything like that they can do to improve the consistency of testing?
1: Well, let's start with time of year, and, and that's something we don't know yet, you know, because... You know, you've got to remember that organic matter, you know, it, when we do organic matter, and we haven't mentioned this yet, John, we probably should have, but, with, you know, we're primarily focusing on loss on ignition where they burn it in a furnace and et cetera, et cetera, right? So so that that technique measures both living and dead organic matter. So when we get into the heat of the summer where we lose roots in general, some of the new bent grasses seem to be better at tolerating the higher temperatures, but that's for another podcast. But at the end of the day, they, they certainly it's gonna measure dead roots as well as live roots because you're ashing it and that's burning off, you know, and you're measuring by subtraction where it is. So basically that, that time of year can be, it's probably, in, in my opinion, not the opinion of the group, is that it's probably dampened somewhat because you're measuring both living and dead tissue. So that's kind of food for thought, that said. But we have been taking samples um, every month at, at, in, in Pennsylvania, in Nebraska, and in Wisconsin and from the same location and some of it's on golf courses and some of it's on research sites and and dr soldat and his student travis are analyzing that to see if we see a seasonal effect and whether we have a reason to suggest that you don't sample certain months or you do sample so so you know so stay tuned on that one but it's a great question because we we've thought about it and wonder whether there's an optimal time to sample and at this point in time, without all that data, we're going to say be just be consistent. You know, always sample X time, or you know, w- whatever the case may be. Because I think we're going to probably see, at least at one location and maybe all three, some sort of seasonal effect on organic matter uh, percentage. And you certainly don't want to take a sample in the fall and then the following spring take another sample and expect them to be the same. You know, or or different, and so there's there's consistency in this sampling, and and time of year is another one that we're that we're taking a look at, but we don't have any of that data. I, Doug probably has it analyzed, and I know his student is going to talk about it at our scientific meetings coming up in in November, but uh, we're not there yet.
0: That's great advice, and that's um something obviously ultra dwarf green in Florida in the summer is going to have a different kind of result than a a bank grass green if you test at the same time of year. So It kind of reminds me of what Dr. Doug Soldat said earlier. He used a great analogy to sort of blood pressure for organic matter testing. Um, Everybody has a little bit different range, but as long as it's kind of within an acceptable range, the doctor is really just looking at trends up and down from your unique baseline. And it's just like organic matter testing, putting green speed, firmness. It's not necessarily to compare it to the course down the street. It's for a superintendent to understand how... Their management practices affect putting green performance at their course. So time of year, whether you're in Florida or New Jersey, just I, I think that's great advice to stay consistent in how and when you test.
1: Well, Doug's analogy is really good because you know you nobody there is no magic number for blood pressure. I mean, it's patient dependent, etc. But and the same is true. You know, we hear numbers bounced around, and you know, unfortunately, those numbers came about because people interpreted. Um, this is where one, of, probably this is what drove, drove me the most, John, to be honest with you, is that I'm looking at this recommendation that, uh, you know, you don't want to be more than three to three and a half percent. But the, the, those those recommendations weren't qualified. These were made by very intelligent turf consultants and turf agronomists and scientists and said, yeah, the magic number is three and a half percent. But then when you look at the data that generated that, it's inconsistent because of the, what we've just talked about for the last 40 minutes, right? So and I don't know if that's a goal we want. I I love Doug Soldat's analogy because it's like you have a range, and you're testing to see if what you're doing is make having an effect, and is your green performance related to organic matter. There's also just being consistent. So I I'm I'm a big advocate of that at most of all, um, and hopefully a a modified method or an improved method or a specific method, which is our ultimate goal, is going to get us around some of these issues with, you know, the magic number and it has to be X or Y, because I don't, I don't think there's a magic number for a lot of the things we do in, in, in golf. Is there a magic number for surface moisture? Is there a magic, you know, and, and the devices we use, um, are different from course to course. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, I I'll use that blood pressure one more than once. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I thought it was great when I heard it. Rock, once complete, you mentioned the standardized method for organic matter testing will be published as a ASTM standard. Are most of these these things, we, we kind of touched on it, but are any of these um, testing protocols or specific parts of the process going to kind of be highlighted as, hey, we really recommend you do this um, as far as separating the samples? I um, I know it'll be budget dependent on the course, but w- will you have any like key parts of your your process that's going to be published uh, hopefully next year.
1: Yeah, that, that's the goal, John. Clearly we want to have a method that is easier to follow, um, consistent, and that the labs, you know, the commercial labs that are doing the work are cognizant of. And that's, a, that's another part of this. Cause we get a methodology. I, I'll give you an example. One of our local labs uh, does organic matter in a way um, that's very automated and very efficient, but unfortunately they can't do what we need them to do right and we certainly wouldn't want to keep the the funding at home because uh um so you know there are going to be specific labs that will adjust um i'm not going to mention a name but we're using a lab that others have used and other agronomists usga agronomists and pga agronomists have used and it they do they, they call it as received so you send them it they drop it into a crucible they ash it per the directions and they give you an organic matter and the turnaround time is really quick. Cause them not having to grind in sieve and them not having to, you know, they weren't cutting the verdure off, but um, for the most part, but <clears throat> I guess some labs were, let me back up on that. But anyway, um, you know, they don't have to do any of that. So they actually can push that sample through relatively quickly, but make sure the lab that you've been using has the capacity to do that, or you're gonna run into the problems that we've already described that we're trying to circumvent, right?
0: So, Rock, we talked a lot about testing today, but I wanted to touch on organic matter management as well, just briefly. Seeing trends continue with ultra-low nitrogen rates, maybe more frequent but less disruptive aeration, solid tining, definitely more sand top dressing. Are you seeing anything superintendents are starting to do differently that you're like, boy, it's about time we did that? And then on, on the other side of the coin, maybe something that you're seeing as a trend that you're a little bit skeptical about as far as what superintendents do to manage putting green organic matter.
1: You know, I love the fact that superintendents um, are good at adopt adopting or adapting, you know, and, and then they, and they share that information. It's like, it's a community. I'm not saying it's a perfect community, but it's a community where people share information. And when we publish the data on solid tining versus hollow tining, it, you know, initially we got a bunch, a bunch of pushback, but superintendents started adopting it and we see a, an increase in the adoption of solid tining, maybe not as a replacement for core but certainly as to augment it and it's less disruptive and, you know, you're not shut down for play as often. So that was the one that I was, I was really, um, Chaz Schmidt, who's at Oregon State, he was my grad student that did that work. Um, he, you know, he and I are pretty proud of that information that's out there and being adopted. Our, our, con- our conservative estimates show that there's been about a 65 to a 70 percent adoption of solid tining as a, an additional management tool in organic matter management, which was contrary to what people would have thought. So, so, so that one is my kudos to the superintendents for looking at the data. And then, you know, kudos to the student that did the work, Chad, Dr. Schmid, for, you know, it getting out there and it be, being adopted. And, but then they, they took it to another level. They started saying, hey, if we're, putting, if we're hitting it with a solid tine, can we top dress before we do it? And will we get more sand into the profile? And that certainly proved to be true. Superintendents were saying, hey, when I solid tine and top dress before, I notice that I need, you know, and they're throwing numbers out that may or may not be accurate, but at least they're an estimate. You know, 10 to 20% more sand is used because we get more sand into, into the profile. More recently, we we did some work and we're continuing it. Actually, when I get down here where I'm heading to the farm, the research farm to put out a bunch of verification treatments. But what about the different tines and what they do? You know, it, you know, do they create a hole that's receptive to sand or do they create a hole that's not receptive to sand? So when they're doing this top dressing, is it worthwhile when you're using a needle tine or a bayonet tine to go ahead and put the sand down at a level where it could get into the hole or... Or do are we wasting our time, effort, and injury and energy? So, I like the fact that the superintendents are asking those questions, um, and then sometimes they're trying to answer them themselves. I'm seeing a new adoption of cross tines. You know, instead of a solid, it's a solid tine, but it looks like a cross. You know, like this. And it's less disruptive and it heals up quicker is what the superintendents say, but we still don't know how much sand is getting into that profile. So we're doing that work now, but I like the fact that they adopt. And then the one thing that last year when I was at the golf show in, in um, Orlando, the GCS show, I, I give a seminar that's, it, that's often very well attended. And We had about 92 superintendents in there. And I, you know, I said, well, how many of you top dress before you solid tine? And then I said, how many of you top dress before you hollow tine? And I was amazed that like 15 or 16 of them raised their hand. And I was like, because we would have never thought. So they they adopt to what the research says, and then they take it to the next level. So I'm not really shocked by anything they do because, um, you know, I was involved in a in a recommendation that was contrary to conventional wisdom. And a lot of, um, I'm not going to say I took any heat, but there were, it was hard to convince certain people that you could achieve X with a solitine equal to a, to a hollow time. So that was a bit of a ramble there, John, but I think, you know, the superintendents figure it out and then they go with it. And, um, and, and we're just academics trying to throw some information out there because at the end of the day, it's where the rubber meets the road is where the superintendent does the work.
0: How important do you think it is to collect data on organic matter content and then correlate that to putting green performance data? Is that something that could kind of be beneficial to see how the the trends in organic matter correlate to putting green performance?
1: I think we're, you know, we've got, you know, there's some companies that have apps and there's some steel companies that have all these apps that, that are designed to collect, not collect the data, but analyze and interpret and whatever the data. So, you know, they're model driven and that sort of thing. So, though you know, those need data. And they're more powerful. They can just be record keeping, but they're more powerful if you can provide the data. So, you know, things like organic matter, especially if we get this standardized method figured out, you know, how much nitrogen are you putting down? You know, what products are you using? All of these things, you know, data is power. And we believe that in research, but I'm seeing a trend towards, you know, traditional farming as well as as in the golf trade of, you know, sensors and the GS3 and and you know, trying to do more data collection. And I think it's important that we use that data. And and once again, I think it's site-specific for the most part. You know, what course A doesn't mean does and it works doesn't mean it's going to work at course B. And we sort of talked about that. But I love the fact that we've become data-driven. And, and you know, we have more opportunities to collect data. There are um, tools out there, a TDR for measuring surface moisture, you know, um, uh, the the GS three does a drop test, but there are other devices that also do the drop test. And you could argue whether a device that's you know less expensive may or may not give as good a data. But there's still a lot of not only data from golf courses and superintendents, but data from um, you know research groups that have used these devices and been able to detect differences. So when you throw that all into the equation, we are more data driven, um, you know, drone technology and and and. Uh, visual analysis is what we used to do. Now we have sensors, for the most part, that can do some of that work. This is all a good thing for the trade. And and somebody, if you're not on the data-driven bandwagon at some level, then you're kind of missing the boat.
0: We had Chris Tritabaugh on earlier this year, and he really drove that point home for us. Everything he does and how he manages his putting green is based on his data collection. If the grass isn't growing, he's going to skip a mow and roll. If his organic matter's staying nice and consistent with his top dressing program and solid tining, he's not gonna pull cores. So everything he does is based on his data collection and it saves him tons of money and tons of time. And he's producing the same quality putting surfaces for his golfers. So it just makes sense.
1: Chris is a pioneer, right? And there are others, Dan Elliot, at, at Lakeshore Country Club in Chicago. They they are data driven and you know, they're industry leaders because of that. And um, kudos to them.
0: Well, Rock, I think this great work you, Brian, Jim, and the two Dr. Dougs have accomplished is long overdue and will go a long way toward understanding and managing organic matter. So thanks again for taking the time today to talk with us. And uh, we'll have to get you all, all you guys back on the organic matter group together when um, we get the final standards published and, and talk about organic matter once again.
1: Well, happy to do it, John. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: That's it for this episode of the USGA Green Section Podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And keep up with our latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication covering all things golf course management.